And when we were together two weeks ago, we were looking at the account from the Gospel of John related to the feeding of the 5,000 and then the miraculous walking on the water to the other side of the lake. And this is where we pick up our teaching. The last time we were together, we saw that the crowd had gathered together because they wanted to see the man who had miraculously fed thousands and thousands of people. They wanted to see another miracle. They wanted perhaps another meal. And they were anxious to see who he was and what it is he may do this very day. And so they've gathered together and they're searching for Jesus and he's nowhere to be found. If you remember, there was a single boat down by the lakeside and the people saw the disciples leave in that boat and Jesus was not with them. And when they ventured to the other side of the lake the following day, they were surprised to find Jesus already there. They knew that something unusual had happened, but they didn't know exactly what it was. And so we began this discourse that John records for us about the true bread, about who Jesus really is. And after he had fed the multitudes and they've returned back to see him again, they have a purely physical desire to be fed a physical meal in their life. Their need, however, is spiritual. They need the bread out of heaven, that which will satisfy their soul. And Jesus is the only one that can ever really meet that need. Jesus makes it clear to this crowd how they can receive the gift of eternal life that he is presenting to them, and that is very simply to believe in him, the one that God had sent, but they won't do it. Instead, they want another miracle, they want another sign, they need some other verification that this man who miraculously just broke loaf after loaf and fish after fish and had 12 times more left over than they they began with, they still need to see something from this guy that gives them the ability to believe. Well, they're not going to believe, and what they really want from Jesus, what they expect, is for him to continually feed them, day after day, to duplicate what took place in the wilderness wanderings when God was making manna appear out of heaven to provide for their physical needs. They simply want to be fed. And in verse 34, where we stopped the last time, they said to him, because he offered them the bread that they would never be hungry again, Lord, always give us this bread. And so we see a group of people who are Fatuated with the physical, they're ignorant and unconcerned about the spiritual, and Jesus is going to continue to reveal to them who he is and what it is that he offers to them. Now, my intent was to get down to 55 today, and we're going to stop at 40. We didn't get to 55. It's not going to happen. Uh, Twelve pages of notes, and you got to stop. So we're going to look at verses 35 through 40 this morning and see the continuation of the true bread that Jesus is. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
So in this passage we're looking at today, we're just going to see a single section with several expressions that come out of that. We're going to look at this, the bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is the first very clear and obvious I am statement that John records for us. We'll look at later on down the road where he is the good shepherd and he is the door and he is the way and the truth and the life and he is the resurrection. There are other vague references that affirm Jesus' deity and who he actually is, but this is the first one that very clearly articulates Jesus being the I am. Now, you and I can't relate to that like a Jew could, because in the Old Testament, when you said I am, that meant only one thing, Father God. And so when Jesus says, I am, there's no coincidence in that, and it is not a subtlety that is missed by his audience. When he says, I am the bread of life, they understand exactly what he is implying by that. We're going to look at several things as the bread of life and in this passage. The first one is that this bread is spiritual. Now, in contrast to the physical meal that they had the day before, and unlike the daily provision of manna in the wilderness for the 40 years, Jesus is talking about a spiritual food that will permanently meet man's spiritual need. You know, you and I, as we think back to Christmases and Thanksgivings and maybe other family events, we can gorge ourselves on the most amazing meal we've ever had before, and in a few hours, guess what? You're going to be hungry again, aren't you? Isn't that just a terrible reality? It doesn't matter how good the food is or how much we've eaten, we're always going to need more food. So as the bread of life, Jesus is asserting His deity. I am the bread of life. The people want bread that they can put in their mouths and process through their stomachs, but what they need is life. They need the life that only Jesus can provide for them, and this is why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The second observation is that this bread is eternal. The bread that Jesus is providing provides life, not physical life, because we're always going to need we're always going to need to eat again. And just like the Samaritan woman at the well, she's always going to need to fetch water again. But what Jesus provides in Himself is a spiritual nourishment for man's starving soul. You know, there's a lot that's said about world hunger today, and it's it's amazing that we still have world hunger. It's estimated that 800 million people are undernourished. That represents around 11% of the world's population. And it might surprise you to find that the number of people who claim to be undernourished in the United States is around 12.5%. But imagine how many people in this world are spiritually undernourished. You know, on this very morning, there are thousands and perhaps millions of people who have gathered together in a worship service who are spiritually starving, and what they're going to get is some kind of a gimmick, some kind of a program, some kind of a self-help tool, but what they simply need is the bread of life. They need a personal encounter with Jesus, who is the bread of life. We do not possess life in ourselves. We can't produce it, we can't provide it, we can't resuscitate it, we can't do anything about our spiritual condition. In fact, the Bible affirms that when you and I enter into this world, we are spiritually dead. 
We are separated from God. We have no hope of reaching God on our own. And here is Jesus as the bread of life. Just as physical bread nourishes our physical bodies, Jesus is the source of life for our spiritual death. If we don't have Jesus, we are separated from God. It doesn't matter about our religious system. It doesn't matter about our morality. It doesn't matter about our good deeds towards fellow man. None of that matters. It simply boils down to whether or not Jesus is the bread of life for you and me because we don't have life in ourselves. Thirdly, this bread satisfies Second part of verse 35, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And I can guarantee you that that physically minded crowd who heard those words were saying, well, give me the bread that I'll never ever be hungry again. We'll never have to go get grain. We'll never have to crush it and roll it out. We'll never have to mix it. We'll never have to cook it. We'll not have to do anything again. I'm going to have this bread that's going to last forever in my stomach. That's not what Jesus is talking about, but because they are physically minded, that's all they're hearing. You know, if we come to church with our hands out, you know, saying, God, give me all I need, give me all I want, all I want is you to bless, all I want is you to provide, we're going to miss the spiritual provision that Jesus makes in Himself in our lives. What our souls need more than a good meal is a personal encounter with Jesus that will actually provide for our spiritual need. When he says you will never hunger, he knows they're going to need another meal. When he says you're never going to thirst, he knows they're going to need drink again. But what he is saying is, what I provide for you will satisfy you in the very depth of your being, a place that nothing and no one else can ever get to. You will never be in want spiritually if you have me. You know, if we aren't careful, we can find any number of things to fill our lives with, with the hope that it's going to satisfy the depth of the need that we feel in our soul that we may not be able to articulate into a religious need. We can do it with power, we can do it with toys, we can do it with travel, we can do it with clothing, we can do it with anything to bring some kind of satisfaction to what we need in the very depth of our being, and that is a real encounter with Jesus. So this bread that Jesus offers in himself is the bread that satisfies. Number four, this bread's requirement. Now, in order to receive this bread, there is a requirement, and this is what Jesus spells out, and this is what is so difficult for his Jewish audience to grasp a hold of, And the first thing that he says here is you must come. You must come. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will not thirst. Coming to Jesus is man's part in salvation. To come to Jesus means that you leave the old life behind. You leave the old values and the old priorities. You leave the old religious system. You willingly forsake everything in order to come to Jesus. Now, depending upon when you had your salvation experience, your understanding of that could be very, very different than it is today. 
That's the growth of lordship. Some people think all you have to do is come down to the front and cry and say, I want Jesus in my life, and that's all it takes. You're done, you're buttoned up, just live your life any old way you want. That's not what it means to come to Jesus. While John doesn't use the term anywhere in his gospel, the implication is very, very clear what John means here, and that is that you need to repent in order to come to Him. When Jesus had the encounter with Nicodemus, Remember when we talked about that, Nicodemus recognized, and what Jesus said to him is that if you are going to believe in me, you have to leave your old life behind, your high status position as a leader within the Sanhedrin, you need to leave this religious system of Judaism and simply come to me. Leaving anything behind and coming to Jesus is often more than most are willing to give. They don't want to give anything. They want to bring it all along. Just bring a big old satchel and pull it behind you. And this is all my garbage. This is my old life. This is me and my worth. But I want to bring it into my salvation experience. I can do that, right? Because of the love of God. Because all I need to do is ask you to be my Savior. It's not what John means here. That's certainly not what Jesus is communicating. Is we must repent. Apart from repentance, hear me very carefully. Apart from repentance, there is no eternal life. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10. through 10. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What that means is, the sorrow of the world produces death, because the world's sorrow isn't really sorry that there's not a relationship with Jesus. They're just sorry that they're in trouble. I watch a couple of these different shows where they track crime and they catch the guy at the end and he'll deny and deny and deny and deny and they'll finally show him all the evidence and he knows there's no way out and boy, he'll just start bawling. Why is he bawling? Because he killed somebody? No, he's bawling because he knows he's got a lifetime of prison in front of him, and that's a worldly sorrow. But you see, a godly sorrow leads us to repentance. A godly sorrow recognizes that he is an immensely holy God, and I am an immensely sinful person, and apart from the love of God expressed through the cross of Christ, I have no hope and no way of ever getting to God. It's through repentance that we come to Jesus for our salvation. Letter B, not only do we have to come, we must believe. The word here, believe, is synonymous with faith. So to believe in Jesus is to believe in Him alone for our salvation. It is to believe in Him as both Lord and Savior, as the Son of God and as the Messiah. It is to believe in the finished work of the cross as the only sufficient way for you to breach the gap between you and a holy, righteous God. There is absolutely nothing that you and I can do apart from God that will bring to us salvation. If you had billions of dollars and gave it all away, it wouldn't get you salvation. If you served for 50 years as a monk in a monastery or a nun in a convent, it would not give you salvation. We have to come to Jesus, repent. We have to have faith in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone in order for us to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I've probably said this in this audience before, but could you imagine what it might sound like in heaven if everybody was bragging about what they had done in order to get their salvation? What an affront to the finished work of the cross for you and I to have the audacity to think that we could do something that would enable us to earn or to deserve our salvation. We won't add to his work in order to be saved. We can't add to his work. It is Christ alone that enables us to be saved. So we are to come to him, repentance, and we are to have faith in him, And this is two sides of the same coin. They are inseparable. If Jesus is not your Lord, then He is not your Savior. Verse 36, Jesus continues, and this is a little bit of an indictment against this group of people. He says, But I said to you that you have seen Me, and yet do not believe. You know, it's amazing to think that anybody could witness the things that Jesus did and not believe. That they could hear the teaching that came from his mouth and not believe. They missed all the significance behind what Jesus did and what Jesus said. The miracles that they had seen increased their desire for more miracles. And they were intrigued by what Jesus could do or what Jesus would do in the days ahead how that might help ease the difficulties of their life, but they were not willing to believe in Him as their Messiah and as their Lord. So I asked myself the question, how is, it that, how is it possible that so many could see the works of Jesus and not believe in Him? Well, <clears throat> the verses tell us, and this brings us to number five, the bread's sovereignty. These verses declare God's sovereignty in the work of salvation and in the doctrine of election as we understand it. And through the end of this chapter, it provides key elements in our understanding of our Reformed theology. So this is what Jesus says as a part of his position of being sovereign. First part of verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. So there is, in this part of the verse, this idea, this notion, this statement that the Father is going to give to Jesus a group of people who are going to believe in Him and have faith in Him. That word all there is the collective plurality of all who will ever come. It would be understood by us as the body of Christ. All that the Father has given to him will come to him. So we contrast that with other beliefs about salvation and the doctrine of election and how one might be saved. And so from the human standpoint of human responsibility, we read verses like this in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Romans 10.13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so reading these verses apart from the context of Scripture as a whole can lead one to believe that man has a very personal and a very important part of the salvation experience. But in the context of Scripture, 
Salvation isn't dependent upon man. It's solely dependent upon God. If you remember back in the prologue, in the first 18 verses in the Gospel of John, we read these words in verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And here's the important part. Who were born not of blood, not your descendancy, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, me wanting it, but of God. When someone comes to Christ, he comes to Christ because God has allowed that to happen. God is the one that has initiated that with salvation. Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 9, talking about how Israel will not be excluded from the kingdom of God forever. He says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God grants to us the privilege of repentance. 2 Timothy 2 the Lord's bondservant must, be, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the faith. God is the one who grants us the faith. Acts 16.14 A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The reality is this. God is the one that is in control of our salvation. He is sovereign over the universe that he's created. He's sovereign over the lives that we live. And he is the one that controls man's salvation. We'll look at this next week in John 6.44. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 15.16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Finally, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. There are many, many other verses that verify that God is sovereign over salvation. So when you hear the multitudes of people clamoring for more miracles, unable and unwilling to give their faith to Christ, it's because God has not ordained that to be so. So why should you and I then share our faith? Why should you and I be concerned about missionary efforts all over the world? I'll tell you two reasons why. One, God said to, and two, we don't know who the elect are. They don't walk around with big signs on their head. There's not a halo. There's not anything glowing. We don't know who the elect is and who the elect isn't. So you and I have been given a scriptural responsibility to go into all the world and to make disciples. That's what God has told us to do. So, back to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So the first thing we look at here, letter A, is we are given to Jesus. I read many different authors who talked about the significance of this, and many of them said the same thing. I want you to hear this. You and I, the the elect, the saved, are a gift to the Son. We talked about that when we were studying the book of Ephesians, that we, in a sense, are Christ's inheritance, right? You and I, as the children of God, are a gift to Jesus from the Father. Now, do you feel like a gift? Do you feel like a burden? Do you feel unworthy? Do you feel 
unfaithful. Well, some of those things might need to be dealt with in our life, but if we think of it, that God the Father is giving to His one and only Son, you and I, as a gift, that's an amazing thought. I mean, you talk about people needing to find significance in their lives, needing to find some kind of purpose and value in their life, to hear Jesus say, all the Father gives to me will come to me, and that you and I are a gift to Him. If that doesn't bring significance to our lives, we don't have a hope of ever finding anything that we can truly anchor our lives to. Just like in the book of Ephesians, that we are the bride given to the groom... We are given to Him as a gift. The all is plural. It is the collective body. All will come to Him, meaning they will repent, and they will believe in Him just as the Father had ordained in the giving of the gift to Jesus. People aren't saved against their will. People don't come to Christ kicking and screaming. We simply come because the Father has given us to Him. So... We are given to Jesus, and letter B, we are preserved by Jesus. Now I'll tell you, this second half of verse 37 was a very interesting study. Verse 37b, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now there is a fairly uncommon, or I will say minor interpretation about what this actually means, and it makes a tremendous amount of sense as we go through these remaining verses, keeping everything in their context. So there's some misunderstanding about what this means. We typically understand this part of the verse to mean, whoever comes to me, I will certainly welcome. Right? That's kind of how we've heard that. That's kind of how we think about that. But that understanding significantly softens the election part that we read in the first part of the verse, right? So, when we read the verse, all the Father has given me will come to me, very clearly is speaking about God's elective purpose. But then when you soften it on the other half by saying, well, whoever's going to come, I'm I'm certainly going to welcome them. You know, I'm not going to kick anybody out that wants to come in, right? That's kind of how we think about that. D.A. Carson explains it like this. And there's a new word for me. I, I hadn't heard this word before. So this phrase in this verse is called alitetes. L-I-T-O-T-E-S. Lidetes. Now this will really, this gets confusing. So what it means is it's a figure of speech in which something is affirmed by negative, excuse me, by negating its contrary. Like, what, what? That sounds like algebra to me. So, it's a figure of speech in which something is affirmed by negating its contrary. So, they're a very simple example of that. You won't be sorry. You've heard that before, right? You've probably said that before. What does that mean? It means you're going to be glad. So, in what you're, you're affirming by negating the contrary. So, this is what's taking place in this verse. So, the, uh, the affirmation expressed in this phrase is different from, well, whoever's going to come to me, I'm certainly not going to kick them out. Whoever comes to me, I will certainly keep in or preserve. So this interpretation is necessitated by the verb here, drive away or cast out. In almost all of its parallel uses, it is presupposed that what is driven out or what is cast out is already in. 
Right? If someone was coming to the door and we said, go away, go away, we're not casting them out because they're not in yet. But somebody that's in the building that we make leave, that's a person we're driving out, we're casting them out of our presence. And so by understanding the phrase this way, it means I will never drive away, I will certainly keep in. That's what's meant in this phrase based upon the verb drive out or cast away. So the flow of the verse then goes like this. All that the Father gives to Jesus as His gift to His Son will surely come to Him. And whoever in fact comes by virtue of being given to Him by the Father, Jesus undertakes to keep in to preserve. The second part of the verse moves from the collective all to the individual believer. It's in this context that we're going to see this really worked out in the next three verses that we're going to look at. Jesus is going to explain why he will preserve all that the Father gives to him. So this is number six in our outline. This bread's purpose. Verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, Jesus has already said that all the Father gives to me will come, and he's not going to drive them out. He will preserve and he will keep them. Here he says that I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of of him who sent me. He said this several times already in our study of John. So as the one and only Son of God, Jesus, sharing in the eternal nature of God, left His rightful place in heaven to come to the earth to do what the Father has sent Him to do. Right? It is to accomplish the Father's eternal will. The will of God began all the way in eternity past. And God's will will continue all the way into eternal future. Right? God's will is constant and consistent. It's not changing. So the whole reason for the incarnation of Jesus coming down from heaven was to carry out the will of the Father, to do the Father's will, and that is to complete the plan of redemption. The eternal plan of redemption that existed before there was ever even a need for it. This is what Jesus has come to do. It is to go where the Father says. It is to do what the Father says. It is to say what the Father tells him to say. For Jesus to not do what the Father has willed him to do would be disobedience and rebellion and would make Jesus incapable of being the bread of life. Now, one of the tenets that we hold to in our faith is that Jesus is perfect. He's without blemish. He's without fault. He's without sin. He lived his entire life without any sin. So for him to be disobedient to the Father's will or to rebel against the Father's will would eliminate him from being the sacrifice that the Father had sent and had planned from eternity past. So, Jesus' purpose is to do the will of the Father, and he's going to express this now in two very clear ways. Letter A, preservation. Now, this is a repeat of what we just said, but here's where it becomes incredibly clear what the second half of verse 37 really means. First part of verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. Big flashing lights here. This is why I came. This is what God's will for me is. 
that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. What does that mean? If I were to give to you a hundred pennies and I say, hey, I want you to keep these on my behalf, so I'll do that, I'll keep them. You are going to preserve what was given to you, right? That's exactly what this is talking about. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Here he's saying, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that has been given to me, all that are going to come to me, I lose nothing. So, it is the Father's will that all that he has given to Jesus as a gift to him would be kept by him and that he would lose nothing. This is where we see the eternal security of the believer come into play or the preservation of the saints. And here's what's key in this whole thing. It's not that we keep ourselves in the faith, but it's Jesus who keeps us in the faith by preserving all that the Father has given to Him. And whoever the Father has given Him will come to Him and He's not going to drive anybody out. You know what that means? You cannot lose your salvation. It's an impossibility. If you can lose your salvation, then Jesus is incapable of preserving what the Father has given to him. Well, what about the falsely professing believers? What about the guy that comes down and balls his eyes out and then goes out next weekend and gets drunk at the bar and cheats on his wife? Well, I'm going to tell you this. He probably didn't really make a confession of faith. Now, he might figure it out later on in his life and get with the program, But chances are pretty good if we come to Christ and nothing changes in our life, we probably are not a true believer. If Jesus can't keep all that the Father has given to him, then what does this say about Jesus? Is he inattentive? Is he incapable? Did the Father give to him insincere believers? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Those who insincerely profess Christ as Lord have not been given to Jesus by the Father and therefore He will not preserve them because they were never given to Him. So the eternal security of the believer is not dependent on what you and I do. It's dependent upon what Jesus does by preserving what the Father has given to Him. So that's the first part of this will of the Father that Jesus has come to do. Letter B, the resurrection. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing and raise it up on the last day. The culmination of our salvation is our resurrection from this physical world. The passing over from condemnation to acceptance, from death to life, from a partial understanding to a full understanding of the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. This is the will of the Father that Jesus would preserve all that was given to Him and would raise it up on the last day. And this is an incredible promise to you and I that we've been given to Jesus as a gift And He is going to preserve us. And when this life is over and this world comes to an end, you and I are going to go straight up and be with the Father for all of eternity. That's what Jesus came to do. To do the will of the Father and what He says right here, to preserve and then to resurrect those who were given to Him. Now, verse 40 
is a restatement of what Jesus has said in verses 35 through 39. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. I don't know what you're facing in your life today, but if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you've been given to Him as a gift from the Father. It is the Father's will that Jesus preserve you as His gift to the Son so that you will be raised up on the last day. How does that affect how we look at our difficulties and our circumstances and our challenges and our unwelcomed parts of this life? If it doesn't change it, we're not really focusing on the Father's gift to His Son in your salvation. You're a gift to the one and only. And He's going to keep you for all eternity. Father, how we thank you for the great God that you are, this great work that you've done on our behalf. Father, we recognize that there's not anything that we could ever, ever do that would make us worthy of that gift. You could have accomplished salvation in any number of ways, but you chose to send your one and only Son to come into this world to take our place on the cross, to pay our penalty to endure our consequence for our sin. And then we're given back to Him as a gift. Got to pray that we would not lose sight of just how significant and how magnificent that really is. Father, we declare together that You are a great God that you are so faithful and so loving and so kind. And we just declare the worthiness of your majesty. Father, how we pray that you would allow us to understand more deeply what that means for our lives. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.